Chapter Twenty Two of the Iron Heel by Jack London. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Matt Saw. The Chicago Commune. As agent provocateur, not alone were we able to travel a great deal, but our very work threw us in contact with the proletariat and with our comrades, the revolutionists. Thus we were in both camps at the same time, ostensibly serving the Iron Heel and secretly working with all our might for the cause. There were many of us in the various secret services of the oligarchy, and despite the shakings up and reorganizations the secret services have undergone, they have never been able to weed all of us out. Ernest had largely planned the first revolt, and the date set had been somewhere early in the spring of 1918. In the fall of 1917 we were not ready. Much remained to be done, and when the revolt was precipitated, of course it was doomed to failure. The plot of necessity was frightfully intricate, and anything premature was sure to destroy it. This the Iron Heel foresaw, and laid its schemes accordingly. We had planned to strike our first blow at the nervous system of the oligarchy. The latter had remembered the general strike, and had guarded against the defection of the telegraphers by installing wireless stations in the control of the mercenaries. We, in turn, had countered this move. When the signal was given, from every refuge all over the land and from the cities and towns and barracks, devoted comrades were to go forth and blow up the wireless stations. Thus, at the first shock, would the Iron Hill be brought to earth and lie practically dismembered. At the same moment, other comrades were to blow up the bridges and tunnels and disrupt the whole network of railroads. Still further, other groups of comrades, at the signal, were to seize the officers of the mercenaries and the police, as well as all oligarchs of unusual ability, or who held executive positions. Thus would the leaders of the enemy be removed from the field of the local battles that would inevitably be fought all over the land. Many things were to occur simultaneously when the signal went forth. The Canadian and Mexican patriots, who were far stronger than the Iron Heel dreamed, were to duplicate our tactics. Then there were comrades, these were the women, for the men would be busy elsewhere, who were to post the proclamations from our secret presses. Those of us in the higher employ of the Iron Heel were to proceed immediately to make confusion and anarchy in all our departments. Inside the mercenaries were thousands of our comrades. Their work was to blow up the magazines and to destroy the delicate mechanism of all the war machinery. In the cities of the mercenaries and of the labor castes, similar programs of disruption were to be carried out. In short, a sudden, colossal, stunning blow was to be struck. Before the paralyzed oligarchy could recover itself, its end would have come. It would have meant terrible times and great loss of life, but no revolutionist hesitates at such things. Why, we even depended much, in our plan, on the unorganized people of the abyss. They were to be loosed on the palaces and cities of the masters, never mind the destruction of life and property. Let the abysmal brute roar, and the police and mercenaries slay. The abysmal brute would roar anyway, and the police and mercenaries would slay anyway. It would merely mean that various dangers to us were harmlessly destroying one another. In the meantime, we would be doing our own work, largely unhampered and gaining control of all the machinery of society. Such was our plan, every detail of which had to be worked out in secret, and as the day drew near, communicated to more and more comrades. This was the danger point, the stretching of the conspiracy. But that danger point was never reached. Through its spy system, the Iron Heel got wind of the revolt and prepared to teach us another of its bloody lessons. Chicago was the devoted city selected for the instruction, and well were we instructed. 
Note. Chicago was the industrial inferno of the 19th century A.D. A curious anecdote has come down to us of John Burns, a great English labor leader and one-time member of the British cabinet. In Chicago, while on a visit to the United States, he was asked by a newspaper reporter for his opinion of that city. Chicago, he answered, is a pocket edition of hell. Sometime later, as he was going aboard his steamer to sail to England, he was approached by another reporter, who wanted to know if he had changed his opinion of Chicago. Yes, I have, was his reply. My present opinion is that hell is a pocket edition of Chicago. Chicago was the ripest of all. Chicago, which of old time was the city of blood, and which was to earn anew its name. There the revolutionary spirit was strong. Too many bitter strikes had been curbed there in the days of capitalism for the workers to forget and forgive. Even the labor castes of the city were alive with revolt. Too many heads had been broken in the early strikes. Despite their changed and favorable conditions, their hatred for the master class had not died. This spirit had infected the mercenaries, of which three regiments in particular were ready to come over to us en masse. Chicago had always been the storm center of the conflict between labor and capital, a city of street battles and violent death, with a class-conscious capitalist organization and a class-conscious workman organization, where in the old days the very school teachers were formed into labor unions and affiliated with the hod carriers and bricklayers in the American Federation of Labor, and Chicago became the storm center of the premature first revolt. The trouble was precipitated by the Iron Heel, and was cleverly done. The whole population, including the favored labor castes, was given a course of outrageous treatment. Promises and agreements were broken, and most drastic punishments visited upon even petty offenders. The people of the abyss were tormented out of their apathy. In fact, the Iron Heel was preparing to make the abysmal beast roar. And hand in hand with this, in all precautionary measures in Chicago, the Iron Heel was inconceivably careless. Discipline was relaxed among the mercenaries that remained, while many regiments had been withdrawn and sent to various parts of the country. It did not take long to carry out this program, only several weeks. We of the Revolution caught vague rumors of the state of affairs, but had nothing definite enough for an understanding. In fact, we thought it was a spontaneous spirit of revolt that would require careful curbing on our part, and never dreamed that it was deliberately manufactured— and it had been manufactured so secretly from the very innermost circle of the Iron Heel that we had got no inkling. The counterplot was an able achievement, and ably carried out. I was in New York when I received the order to proceed immediately to Chicago. The man who gave me the order was one of the oligarchs. I could tell that by his speech, though I did not know his name nor see his face. His instructions were too clear for me to make a mistake. Plainly I read between the lines that our plot had been discovered— that we had been countermined. The explosion was ready for the flash of powder, and countless agents of the Iron Heel, including me, either on the ground or being sent there, were to supply that flash. I flatter myself that I maintained my composure under the keen eye of the oligarch, but my heart was beating madly. I could almost have shrieked and flown at his throat with my naked hands before his final, cold-blooded instructions were given. Once out of his presence, I calculated the time. I had just the moments to spare, if I were lucky, to get in touch with some local leader before catching my train. Guarding against being trailed, I made a rush of it for the emergency hospital. Luck was with me, and I gained access at once to Comrade Calvin, the surgeon-in-chief. I started to gasp out my information, but he stopped me. "'I already know,' he said quietly, though his Irish eyes were flashing. "'I knew what you had come for. I got the word fifteen minutes ago, and I have already passed it along.' Everything shall be done here to keep the comrades quiet. Chicago is to be sacrificed. 
but it shall be Chicago alone. Have you tried to get word to Chicago? I asked. He shook his head. No telegraphic communication. Chicago is shut off. It's going to be hell there. He paused a moment, and I saw his white hands clinch. Then he burst out. By God, I wish I were going to be there. There is yet a chance to stop it, I said, if nothing happens to the train and I can get there in time, or if some of the other Secret Service comrades who have learned the truth can get there in time. You on the inside were caught napping this time, he said. I nodded my head humbly. It was very secret, I answered. Only the inner chiefs could have known up to today. We haven't yet penetrated that far, so we couldn't escape being kept in the dark. If only Ernest were here. Maybe he is in Chicago now, and all is well. Dr. Galvin shook his head. The last news I heard of him was that he had been sent to Boston or New Haven. This secret service for the enemy must hamper him a lot, but it's better than lying in a refuge. I started to go, and Galvin wrung my hand. Keep a stout heart, were his parting words. What if the first revolt is lost? There will be a second, and we will be wiser then. Goodbye, and good luck. I don't know whether I'll ever see you again. It's going to be hell there, but I'd give ten years of my life for your chance to be in it. The twentieth century left New York at six in the evening, and was supposed to arrive at Chicago at seven next morning, but it lost time that night. Note. This was reputed to be the fastest train in the world then. It was quite a famous train. We were running behind another train. Among the travellers in my Pullman was Comrade Hartman, like myself in the secret service of the Iron Heel. He it was who told me of the train that immediately preceded us. It was an exact duplicate of our train, though it contained no passengers. The idea was that the empty train should receive the disaster were an attempt made to blow up the twentieth century. For that matter, there were very few people on the train. Only a baker's dozen in our car. There must be some big men on board, Hartman concluded. I noticed a private car on the rear. Night had fallen when we made our first change of engine, and I walked down the platform for a breath of fresh air and to see what I could see. Through the windows of the private car, I caught a glimpse of three men whom I recognized. Hartman was right. One of the men was General Altendorf, and the other two were Mason and Vanderbilt, the brains of the inner circle of the oligarchy's secret service. It was a quiet, moonlit night, but I tossed restlessly and could not sleep. At five in the morning, I dressed and abandoned my bed. I asked the maid in the dressing-room how late the train was, and she told me two hours. She was a mulatto woman, and I noticed that her face was haggard, with great circles under the eyes, while the eyes themselves were wide with some haunting fear. "'What is the matter?' I asked. "'Nothing, miss. I didn't sleep well, I guess,' was her reply. I looked at her closely and tried her with one of our signals. She responded, and I made sure of her. "'Something terrible is going to happen in Chicago,' she said. "'There's that fake train in front of us. That and the troop trains have made us late.' Note. Fake. False. "'Troop trains?' I queried. She nodded her head. "'The line is thick with them. We've been passing them all night, and they're all heading for Chicago, and bringing them over the airline.' That means business. I've a lover in Chicago, she added apologetically. He's one of us, and he's in the mercenaries, and I'm afraid for him. Poor girl. Her lover was in one of the three disloyal regiments. Hartman and I had breakfast together in the dining car, and I forced myself to eat. The sky had clouded, and the train rushed on like a sullen thunderbolt through the grey pall of advancing day. 
The very Negroes that waited on us knew that something terrible was impending. Oppression sat heavily upon them. The lightness of their natures had ebbed out of them. They were slack and absent-minded in their service, and they whispered gloomily to one another in the far end of the car next to the kitchen. Hartman was hopeless over the situation. "'What can we do?' he demanded for the twentieth time with a helpless shrug of the shoulders. He pointed out of the window. "'See, all is ready.' You can depend upon it that they're holding them like this, thirty or forty miles outside the city on every road. He had reference to troop trains on the side-track. The soldiers were cooking their breakfasts over fires built on the ground beside the track, and they looked up curiously at us as we thundered past without slackening our terrific speed. All was quiet as we entered Chicago. It was evident nothing had happened yet. In the suburbs the morning papers came on board the train. There was nothing in them, and yet there was much in them for those skilled in reading between the lines than it was intended the ordinary reader should read into the text. The fine hand of the iron heel was apparent in every column. Glimmerings of weakness in the armor of the oligarchy were given. Of course, there was nothing definite. It was intended that the reader should feel his way to these glimmerings. It was cleverly done. As fiction, those morning papers of October the 27th were masterpieces. The local news was missing. This in itself was a masterstroke. It shrouded Chicago in mystery, and it suggested to the average Chicago reader that the oligarchy did not dare give the local news. Hints that were untrue, of course, were given of insubordination all over the land, crudely disguised with complacent references to punitive measures to be taken. There were reports of numerous wireless stations that had been blown up, with heavy rewards offered for the detection of the perpetrators. Of course, no wireless stations had been blown up. Many similar outrages that dovetailed with the plot of the revolutionists were given. The impression to be made on the minds of the Chicago comrades was that the general revolt was beginning, albeit with a confusing miscarriage in many details. It was impossible for one uninformed to escape the vague yet certain feeling that all the land was ripe for the revolt that had already begun to break out. It was reported that the defection of the mercenaries in California had become so serious that half a dozen regiments had been disbanded and broken, and that their members with their families had been driven from their own city and on into the labor ghettos. And the California mercenaries were in reality the most faithful of all to their salt. But how was Chicago, shut off from the rest of the world, to know? Then there was a ragged telegram describing an outbreak of the populace in New York City, in which the labor castes were joining, concluding with the statement, intended to be accepted as a bluff, that the troops had the situation in hand. Note, bluff, a lie. And as the oligarchs had done with the morning papers, so had they done in a thousand other ways. These we learned afterward, as, for example, the secret messages of the oligarchs, sent with the express purpose of leaking to the ears of the revolutionists, that had come over the wires now and again during the first part of the night. "'I guess the Iron Heel won't need our services,' Hartman remarked, putting down the paper he had been reading when the train pulled into the central depot. "'They wasted their time sending us here. Their plans have evidently prospered better than they expected.' Hell will break loose any second now. He turned and looked down the train as we alighted. I thought so, he muttered. They dropped their private car when the papers came aboard. Hartman was hopelessly depressed. I tried to cheer him up, but he ignored my effort and suddenly began talking very hurriedly in a low voice as we passed through the station. At first I could not understand. I have not been sure, he was saying, and I have told no one. I have been working on it for weeks, and I cannot make sure. Watch out for Knowlton. I suspect him. He knows the secrets of a score of our refuges. He carries the lives of hundreds of us in his hands, and I think he is a traitor. It's more a feeling on my part than anything else. But I thought I marked a change in him a short while back. 
There is the danger that he has sold us out, or is going to sell us out. I am almost sure of it. I wouldn't whisper my suspicions to a soul, but somehow I don't think I'll leave Chicago alive. Keep your eye on Knowlton. Trap him. Find out. I don't know anything more. It is only an intuition, and so far I have failed to find the slightest clue. We were just stepping out upon the sidewalk. Remember, Hartman concluded earnestly, keep your eyes upon Knowlton. And Hartman was right. Before a month went by, Knowlton paid for his treason with his life. He was formally executed by the comrades in Milwaukee. All was quiet on the streets. Too quiet. Chicago lay dead. There was no roar and rumble of traffic. There were not even cabs on the streets. The surface cars and the elevated were not running. Only occasionally, on the sidewalks, were there stray pedestrians, and these pedestrians did not loiter. They went their ways with great haste and definiteness. With all, there was a curious indecision in their movements, as though they expected the buildings to topple over on them, or the sidewalks to sink under their feet, or fly up in the air. A few gamins, however, were around, in their eyes a suppressed eagerness in anticipation of wonderful and exciting things to happen. From somewhere, far to the south, the dull sound of an explosion came to our ears. That was all. Then quiet again though the gamins had startled and listened, like young deer, at the sound. The doorways to all the buildings were closed, the shutters to the shops were up, but there were many police and watchmen in evidence, and now and again automobile patrols of the mercenaries slipped swiftly past. Hartman and I agreed that it was useless to report ourselves to the local chiefs of the Secret Service. Our failure so to report would be excused, we knew, in the light of subsequent events. So we headed for the great labor ghetto on the south side, in the hope of getting in contact with some of the comrades. Too late. We knew it, but we could not stand still and do nothing in those ghastly silent streets. Where was Ernest, I was wondering? What was happening in the cities of the labor castes and mercenaries, in the fortresses? As if in answer, a great screaming roar went up, dim with distance, punctuated with detonation after detonation. It's the fortresses, Hartman said. God pity those three regiments. At a crossing, we noticed in the direction of the stockyards a gigantic pillar of smoke. At the next crossing, several similar smoke pillars were rising skyward in the direction of the west side. Over the city of the mercenaries, we saw a great captive war balloon that burst even as we looked at it, and fell in flaming wreckage toward the earth. There was no clue to that tragedy of the air. We could not determine whether the balloon had been manned by comrades or enemies. A vague sound came to our ears, like the bubbling of a gigantic cauldron a long way off, and Hartman said it was machine guns and automatic rifles. And still we walked in immediate quietude. Nothing was happening where we were. The police and the automobile patrols went by, and only half a dozen fire engines, returning evidently from some conflagration. A question was called to the fireman by an officer in an automobile, and we heard one shout in reply, "'No water! They've blown up the mains!' "'We've smashed the water supply,' Hartman cried excitedly to me. "'If we can do all this in a premature, isolated, abortive attempt, "'what can't we do in a concerted, ripened effort all over the land?' "'The automobile containing the officer, who had asked the question, darted on. "'Suddenly there was a deafening roar. "'The machine, with its human freight, lifted in an upburst of smoke "'and sank down a mass of wreckage and death. Hartman was jubilant. Oh, well done, well done, he was repeating over and over in a whisper. The proletariat gets its lesson today, but it gives one, too. Police were running for the spot. Also, another patrol machine had halted. As for myself, I was in a daze. The suddenness of it was stunning. How had it happened? I knew not how, and yet I had been looking directly at it. 
So dazed was I for the moment that I was scarcely aware of the fact that we were being held up by the police. I abruptly saw that a policeman was in the act of shooting Hartman. But Hartman was cool and was giving the proper passwords. I saw the leveled revolver hesitate, then sink down, and heard the disgusted grunt of the policeman. He was very angry, and was cursing the whole secret service. It was always in the way, he was averring, while Hartman was talking back to him, and with fitting secret service pride, explaining to him the clumsiness of the police. The next moment I knew how it had happened. There was quite a group about the wreck, and two men were just lifting up the wounded officer to carry him to the other machine. A panic seized all of them, and they scattered in every direction, running in blind terror, the wounded officer roughly dropped being left behind. The cursing policeman alongside of me also ran, and Hartman and I ran too. We knew not why, obsessed with the same blind terror to get away from that particular spot. Nothing really happened then, but everything was explained. The flying men were sheepishly coming back, but all the while their eyes were raised apprehensively to the many-windowed, lofty buildings that towered like the sheer walls of a canyon on each side of the street. From one of those countless windows the bomb had been thrown. But which window? There had been no second bomb, only a fear of one. Thereafter we looked with speculative comprehension at the windows. Any of them contained possible death. Each building was a possible ambuscade. This was warfare in that modern jungle, a great city. Every street was a canyon, every building a mountain. We had not changed much from primitive man, despite the war automobiles that were sliding by. Turning a corner, we came upon a woman. She was lying on the pavement in a pool of blood. Hartman bent over and examined her. As for myself, I turned deathly sick. I was to see many dead that day, but the total carnage was not to affect me as did this first forlorn body lying there at my feet, abandoned on the pavement. Shot in the breast, was Hartman's report. Clasped in the hollow of her arm, as a child might be clasped, was a bundle of printed matter. Even in death she seemed loath to part with that which had caused her death. For when Hartman had succeeded in withdrawing the bundle— we found that it consisted of large printed sheets, the proclamations of the revolutionists. A comrade, I said, but Hartman only cursed the iron heel, and we passed on. Often we were halted by the police and patrols, but our passwords enabled us to proceed. No more bombs fell from the windows, the last pedestrians seemed to have vanished from the streets, and our immediate quietude grew more profound. Though the gigantic cauldron continued to bubble in the distance, Dull roars of explosions came to us from all directions, and the smoke pillars were towering more ominously in the heavens. End of chapter 22 Recording by Matt Saw Montreal MattSaw.org